something very dramatic happened that really changed the world. And that is that um, Constantinople fell to the Turks. That was important because people that used to be in charge of Constantinople and that surrounding area were Christians. Of course, that was before the Reformation, so basically all the Christians in Europe were sort of the same religion. East Europe, I mean the Eastern Church. And uh, it fell to the Muslim Turks. So with the fall of Constantinople, that was the end, actually the official end of the Roman Empire. Because, as you probably know, the Roman Empire at a certain point got so large they divided it into a Western and Eastern Empire. And the Eastern Empire was actually culturally more sophisticated and wealthier. Uh, and it had its, uh, named after the Roman Emperor Constantine, had its capital, capital Constantinople, uh, Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, of course. So, um, it lasted another thousand years after the fall of Rome to the barbarians, or whatever you want to call them, depending on your interpretation. But after the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire continued for another thousand years. For another thousand years. Now, the reason this is very significant, the fall of Constantinople, is because, uh, just as nowadays, money plays a somewhat important role in modern affairs, as you may have noticed. So it will be a comfort to you to know that uh, modern Americans did not invent uh, greed. But actually, there have always been very greedy people in the world. And so the two major population areas in the world were Europe, going all the way down into what is now, you know, say, Turkey and so on, and Eastern Europe and Russia, and Asia, especially China and India, where a lot of people live. And so all this world trade, this massive world trade, was going through, a lot of it through Constantinople. A, uh, there was a city-state in Venice. The Venetian city-state had a lot of power. And so there were certain trade routes. And you couldn't just buy something. You had to buy it from certain people. So with the fall of Constantinople, all these products coming from Asia, especially India, suddenly now had to go to the Muslims. And they changed the rules. And so this was a... Uh, Frankly, just like nowadays, we're in the middle of a uh, major global economic thing. And so this was the same. This actually had the same effect. It was a major global economic, uh, I don't want to say disaster, but uh, change, crisis, in a sense, for people in Europe in terms of spices and textiles and all kinds of luxury goods. And so therefore, it's with the fall of Constantinople that one of the... That people in Europe started thinking, we've got to find a way to get to India without going through Constantinople and the Venetians and all these other people. So this whole rush to find, that's why Columbus, you know, got his boats paid for. And uh, there was a prince in Portugal named Infante Enrique Navegador, which in English is Prince Henry the Navigator. <laughs> they would say in Brazil. And so, anyway, this Prince Henry, that's why he was navigating. I mean, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to, so he was sending people out. They would go down from Portugal. Portugal is very close to Africa. And they go down the African coast. Like every time, a little farther, a little farther, because it was very freaky and scary. Because they had no idea it was there. And so, 
then a, a gentleman named Vasco da Gama. Vasco da Gama. Uh, he went all the way. Uh, before that, I forget the, the guy's name, Cabral. Cabral, I think, or one of those guys had gone around uh, Cape Horn, whatever they call it, Cape Horn. So, uh, Vasco da Gama went all the way to India. And on the way, he did all kinds of really interesting things. You might put in the category of cultural exchange, like burning people alive and bombarding cities and things like that. So one thing, now, uh, 1498, this is Vasco da Gama coming to India without a visa. And uh, so for the first hundred years of European contact with India, and of course this is under, this is before the Mughals, this is the Delhi Sultanate. So for the first hundred years, the Portuguese really ruled at, at least this trade with India. It was really it's called the Portuguese century. So, um, now, in the initial stages of this contact between, in the very beginning, apart from Portugal, which was kind of out of control, uh, it was kind of peaceful, and it was, the, the contact between India and Europe was commercial and coastal. It was really limited to the coasts. And, uh, that's significant because although India has always had a lot of maritime trade, even in the Vedas, in the oldest Vedic literature, we talk about boats and crossing the sea, but it was not military. Uh, it was not military, and so apart from, with one exception, a guy in the 11th century named Rajendra Chola in southeast India, uh, in India, either Muslims or Hindus, they didn't really have navies as serious military things. It, they didn't do naval warfare very much. So people got in boats and went across large bodies of water to make money. In fact, usually the references in ancient Indian literature to sailing is in reference to trade. So, um, now the Portuguese. Portugal, of course, is the far west of Europe. And the Renaissance hadn't hit there. In other words, Portugal culturally was still, you could say, in the Dark Ages. And people in India were kind of shocked because among the more, well, the Portuguese would bathe, you know, maybe like a couple times a year. And uh, they were kind of gross. For example, when, when da Gama was, was going up around Africa and back up toward India, he came across this big this ship filled with you know, hundreds of people that had just done pilgrimage in Mecca. And of course they had all kinds of valuable things in the boat. So what he did was he, he stopped the ship and he pushed all the people inside the hold of the ship and then lit it on fire, including, you know, some very rich Muslim merchants. So that was, again, the Portuguese, they were kind of, they hadn't come out of the Middle Ages yet. The Renaissance hadn't hit there. And uh, they would do other things like um, cutting off the noses and ears of unarmed fishermen uh, forced conversions. When they would defeat people in battle, they would force the wives and the widows and the daughters to convert to Catholicism. They'd probably kill all the men. They would convert temples and mosques, mosques into churches. So this is the European, well, this is the Indian's introduction to Europe, European culture. So these are the Portuguese. And what they do is they establish these little trading sites along the coast. And uh, now... In India at that time, the coast was not a big deal, because, and so therefore it really kind of went under the radar, the fact that the Europeans were setting up these little coastal enclaves. 
which they called uh, factories. A factory was a little assemblage. You'd have an office, you'd have a warehouse, maybe, you know, it was like your little business center. And then gradually these factories got turned into forts. In any way, so, um, any questions so far on uh, Portuguese arriving in India? Oh, by the way, another interesting fact is that, I mean, the world really was kind of, at least Europe, a little clueless. They were coming out of the Dark Ages. So the Pope, Alexander, what's, what is his name? Alexander VI, he thought that India was a Christian country for some reason. Because I think James, brother of Jesus, there was a legend that he went to India, and so everybody assumed, well, he must have converted everybody because he was a brother of Jesus. So they thought India was a Christian country. In fact, when uh, Vasco da Gama got there with his men in Calicut, they went to a Hindu mandir, a Hindu temple, where they had a goddess image or something. They thought it was the Virgin Mary. So Vasco da Gama and all his guys, they, you know, they worshipped the Virgin Mary. And of course, when they found out it was a Hindu temple, they were appalled and, and took it all back, I'm sure. All their worship. So anyway, um, so the Hindu coastal rulers began to realize this is not good. Uh, the Portuguese are a little out of control. And so they made an alliance with Egyptians, with Egyptian military and also um, the Ottoman Turks. And there was a huge naval battle uh, going into the Bay of Camry, which is, like you know, the Gujarat is, that little thing that sticks out in West India, and then this bay that goes way in, it was around there. And the Portuguese won a spectacular victory. That was around uh, 1509. Around 1509. So the Portuguese, they had what's called a thessalocracy, a word that all of you use frequently in your daily conversation. <laughs> thessalocracy is from the Greek words meaning uh, rule of the sea. Thessala, the sea, and, and you know, Kratane in Greek to rule. So they, they, they ruled the seas. And that's what they wanted. They had their little coastal places, they, 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 and, and they were getting very rich doing this. Now, what happened? What happened is, uh, around 1580, Spain took over Portugal. Spain conquered Portugal for a while, until 1640 was all under their rule. And uh, then in 1588, can you close that door there? In 1588, the Battle of the Spanish Armada, England defeated Spain, that famous Battle of the Spanish Armada. I mean, that's interesting, we won't go into that now. Anyway, the result was that suddenly England began to emerge as a major colonial, uh, world power. Not colonial. This is not the age of colonialism. This is the age of sort of uh, aggressive international trade. So then the English go there. The English, of course, have the East India Company, which is formed, and the Dutch. Now, in the 1600s, the Dutch are actually more important than the English in India. They have more political influence and more trade. So it's the Vereinigte Ostindische Company, which, as you all know, means the United East India Company, which is the Dutch company. The English have the um, East India Company, and they start setting up these little factories. And they're just traders. At this point, the English are just traders. In fact, the English will not allow religious missionaries on their boats. And if they catch, if they even catch a Christian missionary anywhere, in their territory, they just put them on a boat and send them right back to England. Like, do not mess this up. Now, the Portuguese, of course, are Catholic. And the French came and they were Catholic. Now, you have to understand what's going on in Europe. We just had a Protestant Reformation. I mean, Luther, at the same time that Columbus set sail, 
the same time that Vasco da Gama makes his little courtesy call in India, uh, Luther is alive and walking the planet. And so you have this Protestant Reformation, and the big losers are the Catholics. So they're trying to gain back territory. They just lost a few countries, which is, you know, can ruin your whole day to lose a few countries. And the Catholic style is what they think God's purpose and will is on earth is that there should be a religious empire centered in Rome. If you've ever gone to visit the Vatican, it is one of the most imperial buildings on earth. It's, it's amazing. So the whole Catholic conception of the right way to do religion is an empire, a religious empire. As you may remember, the you know, Christianity kind of infiltrated the Roman Empire became the Roman religion, and they, the whole Catholic Church structure, the way they organized, was simply modeled on the Roman political structure. Exactly as the Romans governed their empire, the Christians set up a parallel structure. So from the very beginning, the model of church organization was the Roman Empire. And they thought it was really the wrong thing to do for countries like England and Germany and so on to bail out of the Holy Roman Church because that was God's will, a religious empire on earth. So when they go to India, guess what they're thinking? <clears throat> However, uh, England, you know, they, they, Henry VIII, one of the more uh, ethical rulers in history. Anyway, Henry VIII started this whole Church of in England thing. That was a joke. He started the Church of England. So in England, the traders, they just want to trade. They're not into religious empire. They're not trying to convert the world into the Church of England. That's the last thing in their minds. They want to trade and make money. And, uh, and the Dutch. The Dutch, of course, which was the center, one of the important places of the Protestant Reformation, they're not into... And because to say that a country is Protestant means it has religious pluralism, because there were many Protestant churches... So the Dutch also, they, they, want to do, they want to do business. Now what's interesting is that as you go into the 1600s, uh, and especially, let's say, Indonesia, Indonesia, and then India, for a for hundred years you have a major part of the planet being governed by private companies. East India Company is a private corporation. Nowadays, we don't allow private corporations to have much political influence and so on. But back then, anyway, this is kind of raw, no holds barred, not very pretty uh, proto-capital domination of the world. So, so you have Indonesia, Jakarta, by the way, which is the center of Jayakarta. Anyway, so you have Indonesia becomes a Dutch not a Dutch colony, it becomes a colony of a Dutch corporation. The United East India Corporation. And then, but so how do, we get, how do we get from the English who won't allow missionaries on their boats and kick them out of the country if they find them in India? And we just want to trade. You know, we just came here to do business. How do we get from that to 1757 where a private English corporation, the East India Company, is actually ruling most of India? And what was the Indian, resp Indian response to that? So, I will absurdly try to explain all that in the next uh, 30 minutes. And then at the end, we're going to have a special little treat for your vacation. We actually have some students in the class who are, uh, one especially who's a 
classically trained Indian musician, and we have a little musical thing to send you on your way into the right in the holiday spirit. So, so we covered the unbathed Portuguese. <laughs> And of course, the Portuguese center was in Goa. You can still go there. It's, it's kind of like a real cool beach town now. And, and they kind of built it up very beautifully. So I used to say in Portuguese, King Vio Goa exclusively bear Lisboa, which means whoever has seen Goa doesn't have to see in Lisbon, because like you've seen the best there is. Okay. Now, in the 1600s, the Dutch were actually stronger than the English in India. More political ties and better commercial relations. And by 1669, the VOC, that's the United East India Company of, of Holland, by 1669, they were the richest private company the world had ever seen. With over, now this is a private company, this is a private Dutch company. Over 150 merchant ships, 40 warships, 40 warships. Uh, that's more than the University of Florida has, for example. <laughs> 50,000 50, employees, a private army of 10,000 soldiers, and they were paying 40% on investments, corrected for inflation. But still, very high risk because a lot of ships would get lost, they get blown away by the storms, or you know, maybe sunk by a Spanish ship, maybe killed by restless natives. But very high risk, very high return, you, you have this company with 10,000 soldiers, 40 warships, 50,000 employees. This is 1669. Uh, so, now, I, I think the factories were. Uh, so the English, the English are sort of quietly starting to build up what they call these factory towns. And uh, the three important English factories, which are, again, Offices, warehouses, residences, where they do their business, like little business centers. So the English set up three what they call presidencies, or three business towns, which are uh, the three most important ones, Bombay, Madras, and Calcutta, which become three of the four most important cities in India. So three of the four most important cities in India come from these little English, what they called factories, little business centers, which they set up on the coast. Now, what's going on inland? This is on the coast. Now, inland, um, of course, in 1535, probably the Mughals invade. So by the 1600s, it's Mughal rule. So there's no question. There's no question of these Europeans going inland and, and colonizing anything because they'll get their... I mean, they'll get totally beaten up into little pieces. They'll get pulverized by the Mughals. So... Uh, in fact, the English tried, sort of dabbled a bit in uh, gaining a little more influence when Aurangzeb was the emperor. And uh, they got whooped really bad. They got really beat up and bloodied. And so, so in the 1600s, they're just on the coast. They're just trading. You know, they're European sailors, so they kind of brutalize here and there. But basically, they're just doing commerce and setting up their little factories and little trade centers. And business is business. They get permission from the coastal rulers to do that. But Aurangzeb is the overreaching, out-of-control, psychotic Mughal emperor that kind of brings down the emperor, empire because he's such a jerk. 
and is basically fighting everybody. He can't get along with anybody that by the time Aurangzeb dies, no one wants to hear about moguls anymore. And so the whole country is in an uproar. There's uh, conflicts everywhere. The Sikhs, remember the Sikhs can't stand the moguls. So this, this is the end of the 1600s. So the, the English, the English notice that the political situation in India is really kind of um, chaotic. And the Mughals are losing their power. They notice that. Then something else happens. In 1715, there's a Mughal emperor named Farooq Siyar, which you probably never heard of, which shows you where the Mughals, how the Mughals were doing back then. So you have this Mughal emperor, Farooq Siyar, who has a serious illness, and an English doctor cures him. He thought he was going to die. An English doctor cures him, and he's so grateful that he issues a firman, a royal decree, which is like a Magna Carta for the English in India. That they, the English were set up, one of their main places was Fort Williams, in what is now Calcutta. They were given more land. So now they don't just have a little business center, they've kind of got a county. So they've got more land, they're duty-free now, up to a certain amount, and uh, they can mint coins in Bombay. They can actually make their own coins, and those coins will be accepted throughout India. Uh, now what happens is, and, and they start to raise a native militia. They, grab, they turn their factories into forts, because they have to protect their interests. They've got more to lose now, and, and they're in good with the Mughal Emperor. In any case, Bengal is kind of way out there. The Mughals only have sort of nominal control by this time. So the Mughals don't have that much power over Bengal. It's kind of a loose and open political situation. The English are getting more power there. They raise their own militia of local people, Indian people. And um, they're really starting to go for it. But now, so by 1735 in Calcutta, which was sort of an English enclave, there were 100,000 people. So by 1735, they've got an Indian city, which they kind of manage with 100,000 people. But still, they still, it's still nothing like a colony. So in 1748, we're moving right along here through the decades. By 1748, the local the Bengal president representing the East India Company speaks to the uh, Nawab, the Nawab, the ruler of Bengal. This is his language to show you how the British were still... Uh, subordinate. He says, he, he comes to see the Nawab and says, I, the smallest particle of sand, I, the smallest particle of sand, John Russell, president of the East India Company, with his forehand at command, rubbed on the ground. In other words, he's groveling, because otherwise you can't get to see the Nawab. So the English still have to go through all this stuff, this sort of like exaggerated, obsequious psychophantic type stuff they were doing back then just to go to see the Nawab. Uh, but what happens is that's not going to last very long because the English are really growing. They're raising more and more soldiers. They've got money. Money talks. And what they do is they kind of push a little too hard because they, they're, they're trying to flex a little bit. They push a little too hard. And the Nawab fights back. He sends an army. He takes over Fort Williams. Like, I've got enough of you guys. And have you ever heard of the Black Hole of Calcutta? Anyone ever heard of that? Never heard of it. All these things are being lost to future generations. Anyway, 
When they took over Fort Williams, a bunch of English people were trapped in this little room about 18 feet by 14 feet, and they suffocated. Dozens of the English people died in this little room, and this was like headlines all over Europe. People went berserk over this, because, oh my God, it killed these English people, Black Hole, Calcutta. So this guy, Robert Clyde, this young guy wanted to make a name for himself, and the English had a system back then where if you won a battle, like a sea battle, you got to keep a lot of the booty. If you read, like, say, Jane Austen, you see that people in the Navy get very rich by winning sea battles, and if you win a, win a land battle. So they had all these incentives to really fight hard, because you could... So a lot of people, that was their only hope to be rich. If you weren't born rich, one of the most powerful ways you could have upward mobility was to win battles. So Robert Clive comes marching up and defeats the Battle of Plassey in 1757, defeats the Nawab, and the English really take over Bengal. And by this time, again, the, the, the Mughals are weaker and weaker and weaker. They're really almost becoming a little regional force. They no longer rule a lot of India. India and this old Mughal empire is dissolving, and the English effectively are now in charge of Bengal. They still keep some of the outer forms. They say, no, we're just here to trade. And they put someone on the throne, a little puppet. But now an English person has to sit there at the throne and approve everything the Nawab does. So the, by 1757, that's what that date is here, they really take over Bengal. And what they do then is they take advantage of this very chaotic, disintegrating political situation in India. They make alliances. They kind of, okay, you and me against him. And then once we get him out of the way, then it's all of us against this other guy. They, they start doing diplomacy and politics over time. And uh, they gradually start to take over places because the situation in India is chaotic and, they, and the English just kind of have this moxie. They're really going for it. And they start to take over more and more of India. Uh, now, there's a, there's a bad side to this. And, then, and that is that uh, you have these English people far away from home. It took three months to get a ship from India to England. So if you wanted permission for something, by the time you sent a ship and it came back, that would be six months. And usually a decision might take longer because if it was a politically sensitive decision, they have to go to Parliament. and That might take a few months. So you might not get an answer back for a year. So what they did is they had this policy which they called the, uh, the dangerous frontier. In other words, we had to go ahead we wanted permission to go ahead and take over this little kingdom in India. We asked for permission. We couldn't wait because actually our men were threatened and English lives would have been lost and English interests would have been jeopardized. We had no choice but to act because if we didn't act, it would have been a disaster for England. And who's going to know? I mean, how's the English Parliament thousands of miles away? It takes six months just to get a, you know, an email back and forth. I mean, who's going to know? And so basically, in Bengal, for example, the officers of the EIC, East India Company, just plundered Bengal. There was these guys, and, and they just stole literally the equivalent of millions and millions of pounds. They actually ruined the economy of Bengal. They ruined the economy of Bengal. They just robbed it blind by putting the fox in charge of the hen house. These were greedy, rapacious, which is a more academic word, <laughs> Europeans in Bengal. And, uh, and then in 17... Uh, 69, 12 years after the Battle of Plassey, 12 years after they take over, there is a famine in Bengal, and one-third of the population starves to death. I mean, imagine, that's like in Florida, if five million people starve to death. 
or six million people. It's a lot of people. One third of Bengal starved to death, and historians feel one of the, not the only reason, but a very important contributing factor was the plunder of Bengal by the out-of-control EIC officials who are not even getting money from their company and shareholders, stockholders, just for themselves. They were making private fortunes. So, anyway, this is all going on. Now, something very important is happening in Europe. By the time we get to the end of the 1700s, something extremely important, Europe is really going through all kinds of stuff which will completely change the attitude of the English and the other Europeans uh, toward India. There are three major things going on in Europe at that time, or in England, especially England. And there are one, there's an evangelical revival. Those are always fun. So in England, they're having this sort of born-again evangelical thing. It's no more polite religion. It's, you know, we've got to go out and convert people. So there's so much political pressure in England that the EIC has to start letting people on their boats, missionaries. So the policy changes. It's no longer you can't proselytize in, in, in India. Now, throughout the English colonies, uh, they go for it. They're just going to go for it. They're going to start converting people. So that's one major change which will provoke an Indian reaction, especially a Hindu reaction. I mean, the Muslims have been fighting the Christians for centuries by now, so you know, for them it's just the same old stuff. But for the Hindus, when the English people really start proselytizing, and in a somewhat, you could say, somewhat sophisticated manner, because they send scholars, they, be, they become Sanskrit scholars, they start translating, they translate the Bible into Sanskrit, they translate the Vedas into English, they form universities in India. This is not just the Muslims saying that, you know, if you don't become a Muslim, something bad will happen to you. This is actually a modern sort of, you know, act, almost not academic, but approach. Intel, including intellectual elements of trying to convert the Indian people. There's going to be a very powerful Hindu reaction which will reshape Hinduism. And I'll give at least three minutes to that in this class. So, this is not enough time to do all these things. So, the first thing is an evangelical revival. There's another thing, if you know your European history, uh, especially the second half of the 18th century, it's the age of the Enlightenment. When all kinds of people, the influence of uh, Newton, the rise, I mean, science rose in the 1600s in Europe, so all over Europe, especially in England, France, and Germany, there's this powerful move towards rationalism and science. And we don't want to be superstitious. We don't want to be fanatical. There's a lot of anti-Christian sentiment. So there's this whole liberal wave going through Europe to be rational, to be scientific. And so the people that go to India, they're also now these enthusiastic rationalists. And they're going to look at Hinduism they're going to look at the worship in the temples, all these fabulous stories in the Puranas, and say, this is mythology, uh, this is not rational, this is idol worship, and it's just going to be sort of like fanatical Middle Eastern religion, but with a sort of a rational veneer. So, but also, the, this Enlightenment period in Europe not only made people sort of uh, want to be scientists and rationalists, it also made them liberal in the political sense. So you get people coming from England who think that, yeah, we should appreciate India. You know, a, a liberal attitude. We should be tolerant. We should appreciate them. We should respect their indigenous culture. So you get a bunch of liberals coming also. That's happening. And the, anyway, so one thing is the evangelical revival. 
the liberal enlightenment with certain attitudes toward religion, but also a certain humanitarian appreciation of diversity. And last, and certainly not least, the Industrial Revolution. Now, the Industrial Revolution had an extremely powerful effect on colonialism because before the Industrial Revolution, uh, if you look at Europeans or Muslims or Hindus, everyone sort of has the same technology, like a sword's a sword, and a bow and arrow's a bow and arrow, and a lance is a lance, and they all have boats. So everyone's kind of on the same footing technologically. But with this new Star Wars technology coming out of England, you know, the Industrial Revolution, suddenly you've got all this super high-tech weaponry, you've got different kinds of boats, you've got like motorized boats, and Europe, and England particularly, takes this quantum leap technologically, and suddenly it's not all level playing field. It's, they've got a, this huge advantage in terms of military power. They've got, um, <coughs> Europe is getting rich, and so you can imagine these things, evangelical revival, industrial revolution, at the same time this liberal uh, movement, rationalism, science, science is booming in Europe. And so the effect is that from the Indian point of view, this is not just people from another religion coming in, but this is almost like a different level of civilization. These people have sophisticated universities. This, I, mean, I mean, you think about it. If you're coming from a little village and all you've ever known is a little you know, a little thing where a guru has five or ten disciples and they read some books together, and suddenly you come to Oxford or Cambridge, it's, whoa. And, and so you have all these, you have the scientific approach to translating Sanskrit. So, so you know, there's this whole rationalism was also invested in the university system. You can, so all these things are really starting to seduce Indian intellectuals in a way that never happened under the Muslim rule. Because they're being suddenly colliding with the modern world and modern technology. So, uh, by 1818, the English were the main power in most of India. The last strong opponents of the English were the Sikhs that we talked about. And the Sikhs were completely overwhelmed in 1848. So, uh, one last thing. The reason the East India Company ends here is because there was a great uprising against them. Uh, there was what's called the Sepoy Mutiny. Uh, basically, uh, they, in, the EIC had a huge private army. They put this grease, they, they had this new technology where, you had to, where the soldier had to bite off the, the powder bag and put the powder in the gun to shoot, and they would grease it. And uh, the rumor went around was either pig grease or cow grease, so the pig grease totally freaked out the Muslim soldiers, the cow grease freaked out the Hindu soldiers, and the English stopped doing it, but it was too late. There was a huge uprising. There were atrocities on both sides. Uh, the the, uh, the uh, Indian soldiers began to kill English officers. The English reacted extremely violently. And then there were battles. The Indians won some of them. And, uh, for example, there was one case where they, I think in, in uh, Kanpur, where they granted the Indian soldiers, won a battle and granted immunity and sort of safe passage to the English commander and all these women and children and men, and then killed them all. And there were so, so on both sides there were atrocities going back and forth. The English regained control. The English government said the EIC can't do this right, so they just took over. And so in 1857, 1858, you had the British Raj. The 
British government directly is in charge of India, not the East India Company. It actually lasted less than 100 years, direct British rule. So now, the Indian reaction. Uh, my God. Well, it's not my fault. It's fine. So, as the English not only start politically ruled and militarily ruled India, but really started this full court press in terms of converting to Christianity and telling the Indians, look, we are obviously a higher culture. We have universities. We have science. We have railroads. We have telegraphs. We got all this stuff. We are a higher civilization. We have an empire. And, and they began to, you know, it had a certain appeal to certain Indians, like maybe we should westernize. So there was, there was, a, there was a backlash against this. One was called the Brahmo Samaj, a guy named Ram Mohan Ray, Roy, Roy, highly educated, esteemed by the EIC, consulted on sensitive matters of Hindu society and law. He spent years in Tibet studying Buddhism. He's proficient in Persian, Arabic, Greek, Hebrew, Sanskrit, English, Bengali, which is probably better than you or me. And so the Brahmo, Brahmo from the word Brahman, is like a universal house of prayer. Uh, that was his goal. As one scholar says, his liberal mind saw wisdom and spiritual solace in all the great religions of the world. He wrote a book called The Precepts of Jesus, being a vindication of the Hindu religion against the attacks the attacks of Christian missionaries. So he starts to reinterpret Christianity. He's against the Trinity doctrine. He says that's not original Christianity. That was invented by later bishops. Uh, I won't comment on that. So there was a Christian uproar. There was a Christian uproar against that. Uh, so he wanted to reform Hinduism. He, he's known as the father of modern India. But now, because he's not trying to carry out the British, this is not Mahatma Gandhi. But he's trying to reestablish the respectability, the value of Hinduism, and yet he's affected by the Christians and, of course, the Muslims. So he's opposed to image worship. I'll show you the ways in which, even though he's fighting, not against the English, but he's trying, sort of in a peaceful, learned way, trying to revalidate Hinduism, but he wants to take away the worship of icons in the temple, which is sort of like the heart of Hinduism. I mean, the obvious Muslim and Christian influence. Even Guru Nanak of the Sikhs, he wanted to do away with this. Although the Sikhs, they worship their book, the Guru Granth Sahib, exactly like a deity. Whatever is done for a deity in a Hindu temple, they do for the book. Yeah, that was, that was in our book. So, I mean, you know, they fan it, they put it to sleep, they wake it up. They treat it exactly the way the Hindus would treat a deity. So... Uh, now, another influence of Christianity, not only, say, strong monotheism and uh, doing away with this, uh, what was for Christians and Muslims, offensive idol worship, but also uh, the Christian emphasis, the emphasis of Jesus on, you could say, humanitarian principles, like being good to people, helping people, the good Samaritan. So, and think back to Buddhism, how the Buddhists kind of introduced this powerful new wave, or not new, but kind of revitalized morality as an essential component of religion. So similarly, the Brahmo Samaj, they're against uh, Sati, where, where, where the wife enters a fire to leave this world with her husband. Child marriage, they're against that. They're against the caste system. In other words, they want to reform Hinduism, but keep Hinduism. Then there's, uh, it's interesting because the Brahmo Samaj eventually split up and disintegrated because the leader, Keshav Chunder Sen, obviously Bengali name, Chunder 
he um, married his own 13-year-old daughter, an Indian prince. So one of their main things was stop this child marriage, but then he married his own 13-year-old daughter. People went nuts about it, and Aryos Ramos Samaj kind of blew up. Then there's a group called the Pratana Samaj in Maharashtra. The Brahma Samaj is in Bengal. This is in Maharashtra, the other side of the country. The rational worship of one God. Listen to this language, the rational. You know, the rational worship of one God. But they were in the Bhakti tradition. Probably people like not. Anyway. And again, social reform. No caste system. That different castes should interdine. They should intermarry. Marrow, uh, widows can remarry. Against sort of conservative Hindu ideas. Widows can remarry. Improve the lot of women in the depressed classes. Orphanages. Night schools, homes for widows, uh, educational programs. And, and they had, uh, so one of the important, they have these people called life workers, educated Indians that would give up lucrative careers to work for the betterment of the oppressed people in India. One of them, these life workers, was Gopal Krishna Gokhale, became a national figure and was the mentor of Gandhi. Gandhi, Gandhi pointed to him as his teacher. Now today we're going to go through the 19th century. I mean, I'm not going to be completely out of the wild here and try to do the 20th century, but... So th- th- this is basically, this is 19th century. Then the Arya Samaj, another group. All these different groups were springing up to reaffirm Christian, uh, Hinduism. The Arya Samaj, started by Saras, uh, Swami Dayananda Saraswati. He's interesting. The same thing, like, do away with the temple worship. Let's go back to the original Vedas. And he's really militant. He, he's like, everything comes to the Vedas. This is better than Christianity. He's very aggressive and against the caste system and, and against the moral program, improved a lot of Indians. But he's like a Vedic purist. He wants to do away with the Puranas and Tantras and all this stuff. Basically, he wants to dump most of Hinduism and go back to what he believes is the original pure Vedic culture. He's quite militant. He didn't speak English and... He didn't really dialogue with the, with the Europeans. He was just kind of, he was quite militant. What happened is he criticized this Indian prince who was having affairs with women. And so one of the women he was having an affair with did not all appreciate his, you know, making her famous in this way. And so she had one of her servants uh, pulverize some glass, grind up some glass, and put it into his evening hot milk. And if you drink a bunch of glass particles... That's it. So that's how he died. He was actually killed by the mistress of an Indian prince because he was like really outspoken. I had one experience by time very quickly. In 1979, you probably heard there was a 19th century. In 1979, I was in Bombay and uh, at one of the most famous temples in Bombay, the Juhu Temple, Radha Krishna Temple in Juhu. It's a very, very popular temple and it's sort of in the Malibu of Bombay. And... Um, the number two person in India, the vice prime minister, the assistant prime minister, uh, Charan Singh, who eventually became the prime minister for a short time, he wanted to come and visit the temple. And so the managers of the temple asked me to be part of the reception committee because they knew me. And so I was part of the reception little re- to, to greet this person who was the uh, number two guy in India at the time. So he came with his whole entourage and security apparatus and all that. And so we were, you know, I greeted him and we were leading him into the temple and when he got to the temple, you're supposed to take your shoes off. I mean, it's like, duh. I mean, no one, but no one goes into an Indian temple with their shoes on. It's just, isn't it? I mean, there is no such thing. And he started walking to the temple with his shoes on. 
And there are always, like, where he was on a Sunday, there are always simple people at the entrance of the temple. It's like really simple, I don't want to say low class, but just very simple people. Uh, who just kind of hang, you know, they hang around the temple. You know, ladies, widows. And so as he started to walk into the temple, they grabbed his legs. They practically tackled him. This was, you know, assistant prime minister of India. And they, did, they, they physically stopped him from going into the temple. And then I remember he, he turned to me and he said, I am an Arya Samaji. He's from the Arya Samaj. Again, these people that reject temple worship, Puranas, Tantra, everything. He said, I won't take my shoes off because I'm from the Arya Samaj. And the people would not let him in. He, he basically did not go into the temple. He, could, he couldn't get in. I mean, he would have been tackled by the local people if he tried to walk in the temple with his shoes on. That was Charan Singh. Anyway, so that's the Arya Samaj. Then there was Ram Krishna, who is seen as a great saint by Professor Rodriguez. There are other views of Ram Krishna. But anyway, the, and his disciple Vivekananda. The common theme of all these people, though, there's the Pradhana Samaj, the Arya Samaj, which means society. Ram Krishna, Vivekananda, the Brahmo Samaj, is in India, Hindus who are being dragged by the Europeans into the modern world, coming out as the people that are saying there's only one God, and no matter what religion you're in, we can all work together. And so, in opposition to this, these fanatical sectarian religions coming from the Middle East by way of Europe and, and, and Islam, it's India which starts to position itself, not just as a tactic, but also as a tactic. But we talked at the beginning of the course about how uh, there was freedom in India, and there was a sense that it all fits together into one big picture. And so now, in response to this European challenge, they begin re-articulating, reaffirming the unity of religions, the Theosophical Society, and so on, is inspired by India. So India really starts to be, in a sense, the conscience, the ecumenical conscience of the world. And starts to play a very powerful role. So, um, and that's really the theme. The Congress of World Religions, 1893 in Chicago. Vivekananda's kind of like the star. So India starts to become the ecumenical conscience of the world, and it's really this Indian example which starts to lead to all kinds of uh, interfaith dialogues and things. People inspired by Indian and Indians themselves. So I think it's very important. 